I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Alan Davis, who is the Assembly Member, the Labour Assembly Member for Blaine Gwent. Alan, you're a Tredegar boy, aren't you? Yes, I was born in Tredegar. I was born in St James's Hospital in February 1964, in the middle of a blizzard. My mother and father both born in Tredegar. My paternal grandmother moved down from Aberystwyth, of the Aberystwyth area, at the turn of the 20th century. My great-grandfather had work in and around Tredegar, so the family moved down when she was um, an infant, essentially. So the family are pretty well rooted in the town, um, still live there, and I grew up there. I started school in Glen Howie Infants, I, um, Dukestown Juniors, and then Tredegar Comprehensive, before disappearing off to Aberystwyth University. And were your family Welsh speakers? No. It's interesting, actually, because the death of the Welsh language in my family reflected the death of the Welsh language in large parts of um, the Eastern Valleys. Um, as a family, when they came down from Aberystwyth, they were entirely Welsh-speaking. I remember my grandmother talking about being unable to speak English as a small child. Um, and then, because she was obviously compelled to speak English at school, at the time of Welsh, not and the rest of it, turn of the century, my, she brought up my father to, uh, to speak English. And she always told me towards the end of her life that it was the greatest regret she had looking back. And my father, if you'd met him, he would have read the Bible in Welsh to you and you would have assumed that he was a first language Welsh speaker because he could read uh, the Bible and he could sing hymns in Welsh. But he couldn't understand a word of the language. So the language, if you like, died. It was like a, a fault running through the family in the end of the 1920s, 1930s. Although I do remember um, in the 70s visiting aged relatives uh, being forced to sit on the floor and eat tongue, I remember, which I hated uh, listening to people speaking in Welsh and I, I just remember a babble above me and it didn't pay any attention to me at all. But then of course my daughter and my son now speak Welsh fluently. My daughter's first language is Welsh. So, you know the story of the Davises, if you like, through the 20th century into the 21st century I hope is a story of a language, a wider story about the language as well, where you've got death and rebirth. And certainly learning Welsh, I learned Welsh in Aberystwyth as a student. I didn't speak a word of Welsh when I went to college. Um, is something which has certainly enriched me and enriched my life. It's something which I'm constantly grateful for having the opportunity to have done so. And it's something which I hope will continue to enrich my children's life. You went to study politics. Did you come from a political family? Oh, you know, you come from a political family in the sense that we're talking about politics. I assumed that Nairam Bevan was still alive when I was a child because his name came up in almost every conversation. He obviously lived opposite us when he was alive in Charles Street, literally in Charles Street in Tredegar. My father remembered him, my mother remembered him, my older grandparents and aunties all knew him, knew the family. Uh, I think Bevan's family went to Carmel Chapel, which was behind our chapel, Ebenezer, so they would know each other and talk to each other and they'd speak on the way home, walking home from chapel. So so there was that folk history, if you like. There was that sort of history of political, political knowledge and political identity and uh, a sense of what was right and wrong. I spent a lot of time with my grandmother as a small child and she was very, very clear that... Uh, 
you know, it was us on the left who were right and those on the right who were, who were wrong. I remember her being absolutely vicious about Winston Churchill, for example, views I wouldn't necessarily subscribe to today as it happens. But certainly growing up, it was a political environment because in the 1970s, I remember running around the schoolyard literally shouting Heath out in, in junior school and then there was the Collier strikes of course in seventy in the early seventies and I remember, you know, my birthday's in February, so we literally did have a birthday party by candlelight and there would be a sense of working with the miners um and that they were part of our community and it was that sense of a uh, community that was united in all sorts of different ways. And, of course, my family did rely on the Trigger Medical Aid Society. They were treated by the Medical Aid Society before the National Health Service was established, you know. And I remember going to the Medical Aid Society's surgeries as a child when they were being converted to the National Health Service, of course. So there was that sense of a place, but it was also a sense of Trigger's place in the world, ironically. Um, I remember Phil Williams wrote in A Voice from the Valleys, that everybody he knew who came from Tradiga was a finely honed PR person for the town, and he described as queen of the valleys. And my memory is that uh, coming from Tradiga, I was always told that you've got to be very proud because you're from Tradiga, but Tradiga is the place where all lots of things happened and continue to happen. And so there was a sense of a pride of a community and a sense of place for a community, a place both in Wales, Welsh history, but also wider UK history. So you went to Aberystwyth to study politics. Was it always going to be politics? Was it no, no, no. I, 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 I started off doing um, geology and mathematics and geography. Um, I was taught by John Marrick in my first meeting with him, um, uh, as an 18-year-old, you know, he taught me maths in my first year, and I, I enjoyed the course, but it was it was very difficult and very different to what I'd imagined from school. I spent some time considering whether I wanted to be a geologist and whether I wanted to spend my whole time doing geology. I enjoyed it. I enjoy looking uh, at uh, different things today, but um, it wasn't what I wanted. It wasn't for me. So I changed halfway through my course. I did politics. I moved across to politics, which I enjoyed. You know, What I enjoyed was, it wasn't so much the UK and Welsh politics, actually. I enjoyed doing the international comparative studies. I enjoyed uh, the history of the American presidency, for example, comparative communist states we did at the time. I think there were free Soviet leaders when I was doing my degree course, which uh, led to some uh, uh, confusion at the time. And I remember writing a dissertation um, in the mid-'80s on the influence of Islam on Soviet foreign policy and, and the growth of Islam as a political force in Central Asia. Now, neither I nor my lecturers, I suspect, had any idea of what was to follow. But it was something that stayed with me, of course, the understanding of the place of Islam, the place of religion as well in the Soviet Union at the time. I visited the Soviet Union. Um, I saw the red flag flying above, above the Kremlin and spent a lot of time trying to understand some of those, the history of that. So was it at Aberystwyth that you got involved with Plaid Cymru? Yeah, um, sometimes when I listen to people talking about the 1980s, there's this sort of almost romantic view of the minor strike and other disputes and of society changing at the time. Um, but isn't my memory at all. My memory is that, is that the 1980s were a terrifying, frightening, dark period of time, uh, possibly not as dark as we're seeing today. 
but I listened to people speaking political verve at the time I felt was led by Dav Vellis-Thomas, Gwynalf Williams, people like this, who were able to speak with a fantastic coherence about a radical politics. You know, I remember going to London to campaign against the abolition of the uh, GLC, and I remember uh, listening to Ken Livingstone speak in Victoria Gardens and places uh, and joining marches there. And I thought it was a fantastic verve and voice um, at the time, which was led by people, say, like Davil and others. And I felt that uh, at the time there was this radicalism that we needed to change society and the liberation campaigns that were um, getting off the ground at the time as well. And I was never one which sought to break the links, if you like, with wider UK politics. I was a member of the NUS NEC and I joined in with demonstrations, I say, in London and the rest of it. So I never wanted to turn my back on those things. I never agreed to Plaid Cymru that we shouldn't stand in NUS elections. I felt it was absolutely essential to do that. But I felt at the time that Plaid Cymru were a radical option, which was speaking to me of the sort of alternative that we needed to Thatcher, which wasn't simply electoral politics, but a politics which was about changing society and not just winning an election. And... You became the president of the NUS in Wales, I think, didn't you? I did. I was elected, I think, in 1987. I was elected again in 88, so I did two years. It was a profoundly exciting time, notwithstanding what I've just said about being a very dark period of, of our history. For me, as a as somebody in their early 20s, it was an opportunity and a place in seeking to campaign on different things. I remember we campaigned on um, the establishment of a Senate, as we called it, for Wales. And it's where my ideas on democracy were very well crystallised. I remember being told very clearly as President of NUS Wales, if I wanted to discuss education in Wales, I had to go to London to speak to a minister, and that minister would only be available on very rare occasions. Uh, there was no democratic oversight at all, and there was no, no way of influencing policy in any real way. And that experience taught me the democratic settlement that we need in the United Kingdom is one which enables us in Wales to take decisions in an open and transparent way and where those decisions are made in Wales, for Wales. And it's something which I hold to today, you know, I made speeches um, across the way in the Senate about home rule. Um, which I think is is a good way of expressing the sort of um, place that I hope Wales will reach. You know, Kay Hardy, of course, was uh, elected on a Home Rule manifesto back at the turn of the 20th century, and it's been a part of Labour tradition um, throughout this century. It's ebbed and flowed, I think it's probably fair to say, during that time, and probably hasn't been at the top of that uh, agenda for the whole of that time. It's been a part of the history, and I hope that as we move forward today now in 2019 that a sense of a place for of a parliament for wales within the wider uk democracy is, is a place that we'll be able to reach you stood didn't you on a couple of occasions yes. to uh, be applied cymru um, mp mm-hmm. to be applied cymru mp obviously at that time you had ambitions to be one of the leadership contenders i imagine in Plaid. what went wrong um, it well, never really occurred. That, that never really occurred to me. And when you apply candidate in those days, you never really expected to win, frankly. So it wasn't uh, a part of a dedicated, thought-out um, political career, I have to say. But what went wrong? I presume you mean why did I leave? Yeah, because because for some people, 
implied now, you're regarded as some kind of traitor, aren't you? Only by very young people. The people I actually knew at the time, um, I get on with quite well, actually. But the people who weren't around at the time don't remember me, of course, do have um, different views, and of course they don't know me either, of course. But what went wrong? In the 1990s, I spent a lot of time thinking about my politics and where we were going. I also spent a lot of some time working um, on different projects elsewhere as well. And the more I thought about my politics, there were two things. First of all, I felt that some of the campaigns that Plaid Cymru were involved with about independence, I thought, were wrong-headed. But it was more than that. There was a culture within Plaid of almost pacifism, which I found deeply, deeply distasteful. And um, there were a number of occasions, you know, I visited Rwanda during the genocide there and former Yugoslavia during the war there, so I saw human impact of genocide. You know, you see the bodies, you see dead people, frankly. And uh, when you, then you've got a lot of very liberal, middle-class people in the safety of the West saying that we're not prepared to lift a finger to help defend the lives of poor people elsewhere in the world. You think that's a morality that I've got no time with and I have no time for. And so there were, you know, there were a number of issues which coalesced at that time, which was, so there wasn't a single trigger, I don't think. There wasn't a single incident, you know, a meeting that I walked out of or anything like that. I didn't resign my membership, I just let it lapse. Um, and I walked away from, not just Black Curry, but from politics as a whole. And but it went into w- public affairs. Well, yeah. public affairs and, and other things at the time as well. But it was, for me, part of the most enriching part of my life as well. And it was... It wasn't a difficult decision, I remember, leaving Plaid, and it wasn't a difficult decision leaving politics. I felt I wanted to get away from everything uh, at the time, and I wanted a different direction in my life. And so I was, uh, I remember being very content. I remember being very relaxed about it. I remember thinking, that's it, I don't need, I'm not going to worry about politics. I voted, obviously, but I didn't play an active role. And, you know, given my background, you know, the Labour Party were always there. I was never one of these people who sat around in corners, you know, trying to sort of uh, compete with each other about how much they hated the Labour Party. I was never my, my politics, you know. When I was in NUS, I was involved in Labour Party groups and Labour Party organisations. I was involved in Labour campaigns as a member of Plaid Cymru. So I was never um, one of those people who... Uh, never wanted anything to do with with Labour. I, I couldn't do that because of my background, you know. I felt very content. Uh, I voted Labour in the uh, elections. I didn't do much work canvassing, but that was partly because sometimes because of my job precluded that. But um, I was very content in my life. I had a young daughter. Um, I was very happy with what I was doing. I also challenged myself. I spent a lot of time challenging myself, um, not just reading widely, but listening to other debates. Because w- w- one of the, the issues I found implied was that, you know, you've also almost gotten, and you see it with some people in the chamber today, that, you know, you can tell what they think about any subject, whatever it happens to be, a year in advance, because this is what we believe in. And uh, I, f- I felt distinctly uncomfortable with such a, so a, a dogmatic approach to absolutely everything under the sun. And I felt that they were going in entirely the wrong direction, and I wanted no part of it. 
When you were doing your public affairs work, um, Alan, you worked for some quasi-public bodies, didn't you? Uh, I suppose, you know, I mean, obviously, Hudder that you worked for, I mean, that was quasi-public. Uh, it was a water company, wasn't it? Water and electric. It, it, was, was, a, it was a utility, utility yeah. Company. You know, of course, they would have bridled at that <laughs> description. But, uh, and, of course, it was the, the money markets that brought it to its knees, of course. You know. Yes. Whilst, you know, you say it's crazy public, which I, is not a description I would recoil from, frankly, um, because you have to pay water bills and you have a regulated market for yeah. electricity, so, yeah, there's no issue about that. I saw that as an opportunity event to, to go in a different direction. I've made good friends in Haida, um, people, I still say Haida, not Haida, um, which has stayed with me, people who I know and enjoy their company today. And it, it also took me then into a firmly different direction. And, of course, after that, I worked for the nuclear industry, which I thoroughly enjoyed as well. And Are you a uh, nuclear um, advocate? Yes, yes, I've got no issue. Nuclear weapons? Um, yeah, I, I think we require nuclear weapons. I don't have an issue with... Um, Quite expensive, aren't they? They're very expensive. It's an issue, of course, whether strategically it's the right direction to go. But, you know, if your question is, do I have a, a moral issue with nuclear weapons? The answer would be... I think I'd have a moral issue with some use of put to of nuclear weapons, but should the United Kingdom as a country have a access to a nuclear umbrella? Well, that's a different question. And I think there are serious questions to be asked about whether the strategic direction of the last defence review was the right direction. But that's a different question, of course. And um, I'm not always convinced by some of the arguments of the generals that, you know, we must always have an arsenal of, of nuclear warheads because in some cases they would be worse than useless. You know, it's such Plenty some, of European uh, countries don't have Of course, and, you know, if you're, not, if you're looking at a more asymmetric sort of warfare as we have been over the last 20 years, then, of course, uh, nuclear weapons are entirely um, a pointless uh, uh, investment. But that's a different argument. I, I don't have any of the squeamishness that, that some might have about that. I think it's important that we support our armed forces. I enjoyed being a minister, having a responsibility for our relationship with the armed forces. I trained with the territorials as a teenager, so this isn't a, a new thing either. You know, I remember learning to shoot with the territorials in Abbeville when I was a teenager. So, you know, it's not something that I'm unfamiliar with again. But I think it's hugely important that we invest in defence, uh, that we support um, not just serving personnel. I think we need to do more in Wales, as it happens. One of the, you know, whenever you leave office, there's a whole load of unfinished agendas flying around. And one of my unfinished agendas was a Welsh defence review, looking at how I want to see more soldiers serving personnel based in Wales. I want us to have more bases. I don't think we, we punch our weight in the United Kingdom. And uh, one of the things I wanted to see was Wales playing a greater part in um, certainly uh, acting as a home base, if you like, for our armed forces. You know, I did what I could al- along the veterans' um, agenda, and I think I did a reasonable job there. I was quite proud of some of the things we did. And also supported investment. You know, you've got General Dynamics, of course, in Merthyr. A number of my constituents work there. And you've got Talis now in Ebbeville. And a number of my constituents work there as well. So I hope that we will continue to support the defence establishment and the defence industry. When you were a public affairs executive, you represented 
uh, tobacco company, big tobacco companies. And did you have any moral scruples about that? Um, yes, obviously, um, you do. Um, the company uh, represented that during the time of the um, debate over smoking in pubs. Um, I was never convinced about the legislation. I am now. I think this legislation has worked. And to visit different countries now, I see tobacco smoke around me. I move away from it. I hate it. And I'm one of these people who was a lazy smoker who's now completely given up as a consequence of that ban. So I think it's one of the policy initiatives that I'm very pleased now to support. And it's one of the areas where you take decisions at different times. But, um, you know, uh, I... I as I said, I was unconvinced of it at the time, but within six months, I felt it settled down, and I felt that it had made a significant impact um, on the health and well-being of people in Wales. And, you know, when we were debating these matters in committee before the last election, uh, I was very taken with Mark Drakeford, who was the health minister's arguments, over applying the same legislation to, to vaping. And if there were to be a vote on it today, I would certainly extend the legislation to vaping. And, and particularly now, some of the evidence came out in the last two weeks from the United States on, on that. I think it's, a, it's an area where we need to look with a far greater focus. If you ask me, you know, have I changed my view on lots of things, you know, since representing Blind Gwent, for example, since 2011, I think the importance of public health is one area where I have. When I stood in 2011, I focused on jobs, 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 and run a very traditional Labour campaign, if you like, in the valleys. But, you know, as I campaign today and represent the community today, I spent far, far more time on public health. And I think it's, a, it's one of those growing emergencies in, um, in our communities. Initially, for four years, you represented Mid and West Wales. Yes. You? What was it that prompted you to go into elected politics um, under a Labour banner at that time? Well, I stood before, of course, uh, as, as a Labour candidate. Um, but yeah, in, uh, in what, what prompted me at that time? I felt I was ready to go back into politics. I felt I had something to contribute. I felt that um, the National Assembly had been established. I was quite critical of it at the time. I felt it needed far greater powers than were available to it. Uh, and uh, I felt that I could make a contribution. Um, what was happening in Blaine Gwent was happening with Peter Law and the rest of it. Um, I felt that that um, the independents who took control um, let down the people in Blaine Gwent, quite frankly. There were a lot of promises made which weren't delivered by the independents. Um, I was elected in Mid and West Wales on the regional left list um, 2007, and I uh, I enjoyed. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I felt hankering towards Blaine Gwent. I felt that Blaine Gwent was being incredibly badly represented at the time. I remember looking across to the seat occupied by a member for Blaine Gwent, and it was empty nearly all of the time. Uh, committees weren't being sat on. There was no um, attempt to, to work with the government to deliver things for Blaine Gwent. And my father was very ill at the time, and he subsequently died. Uh, a decade ago and so I would, although I was representing Mid and West Wales I was actually spending a lot of my time back home in Tredegar and I remember talking to people around the town and thinking I want to come home, I want to do this and I remember talking to Chris Roberts who was the General Secretary of the Welsh Labour at the time and talking to people here um, in the National Assembly and they were all uniformly advising me not to do it 
its madness was the, uh, the view that was taken everywhere, and I suspect by yourself as well. And I decided to do it. And it was a 5,000 majority, of course, we were standing against. And we won. And it was, um, it was probably the most, uh, one of the most satisfying um, things in my life. Then, as a representative for Blinded Gwent, you came to the fore advocating for not just Blinded Gwent in a sense, but for the Valleys as well. I mean, you're very conscious, aren't you, of the need to have revitalisation from an economic point of view of the Valleys. Yes, absolutely. Look, you know, um, we see the Valleys as being our valley or our community, our town, our village, wherever it happens to be, and we see our valley and we see the boundaries of um, local government or political boundaries of constituencies. But the reality is that the Valleys economy can only function as a whole. And, you know, if something is successful in Merthyr, then that's going to help Blind Egg Went. And, you know, at the time, of course, we were campaigning for the dueling of the 465, the heads of the Valleys Road, and campaigning for investment. You know, the college in Ebervale now was, a, was a, a consequence of some of those campaigns. So we did spend a lot of time... Um, campaigning for the investment in that um, economic infrastructure. Uh, but, of course, what we didn't know and what's happened since, of course, is austerity, the financial crash and the rest of it. And so these have probably been the most difficult days to represent a valley's seat in recent decades. And people, quite rightly, and, you know, I, sp- I spoke to people this, week, this last weekend about what they feel about politics, and they feel that I've failed. There's a sense there that I've, that Alan Davis has failed, that, that politics has failed, that this place, the National Assembly, has failed, and there's a sense of real frustration that they want so much more for their community. You know, it goes back to that pride I spoke about at the beginning, and there's a sense of frustration that we we, we need more than this. And I share that. I share that frustration. And it, it makes my blood boil then to see you know, naked racists, essentially, in the Brexit party and UKIP before them, taking advantage of that, the easy, lazy promises. Do you know, you put a cross in a box, and do you know what? Everything will change. Well, of course, we all know that put a cross in a box is the beginning and not the end of a process. And if economic development was that easy, then it would have been done years ago. You know, It's not as if you've got bad people trying to do bad things. So... I think we've got, and this takes us you know, right up to where we are today, you know, I, I disagree with the Liberal Democrats when they say we can get rid of Brexit simply by a vote in the House of Commons. I think we've got to do more than that. I think we've got to not only hold another referendum and the rest of it, but we've got to do more than that. We've got to win hearts and minds, and we've got to deliver for people. You know, people have a right to a future. People have a right not to live in poverty. They have a right to basic services. They have a right to live a fulfilling life. And for all sorts of different reasons, that is not being delivered at the moment for people in Blanagwent, for too many people in Blanagwent. It is being delivered for some, but not for everybody. And then across the valleys as a whole. So I think we're politicians. and We can play our games down here and we can score political points whenever we like. But at the end of the day, you've got to deliver the people you represent. And a lot of people in Blind Egg went voted for Brexit as a, I don't think as a protest, but because they do not believe that either this place or Westminster or the local council are delivering for them. And that is something that we can't ignore. But that's linked really, isn't it, ultimately to austerity politics? Yes, it is. And breaking free from austerity politics is um, 
a major challenge, isn't it? Yes. I mean, first of all, you need to have a change of government at Westminster in order yes. to achieve that. Because but you do, you do. And you, you need more than that, don't you? Because if you look at the history of the last, say, 10 or 12 years across the West, you've seen Trump being elected in the United States, blue-collar voters, very similar to the voters in Plan Gwent, the Front National doesn't succeed in the leafy, leafy suburbs of Paris, but in former coal mining parts of Picardy and southern France and places. We've seen uh, alternative for Deutschland uh, winning the same votes in Germany and various different parties, Five Star and the rest of it, winning those same votes in, um, in Italy. The centre-left across Europe and across the West has largely failed to articulate a response to uh, austerity. You know, I was never a great fan of Gordon Brown, although I saw something on social media last night, him responding to the news that David Cameron lost his son, even, uh, which has been in the news at the moment. And I thought it was a magnificent gesture in the House of Commons where he spoke about the loss of his own daughter. And I thought it was... And I yearned for, for that approach to politics, um, where we have our differences, but we can see the human nature, the human being that stands or sits opposite us, and I, and I, and I yearn for that. Uh, but Gordon Brown, as Prime Minister, responded, and you remember the Glen Eagles uh, G20 meeting, in a way which I think is I think it's no exaggeration to say that he saved the Western um, economies um, in those meetings, and with that force of argument and force of intellect. And where has that gone? You know, where has that gone? Where has that ability to articulate a centre-left alternative to austerity gone? It, we haven't just lost it in the United Kingdom and in Wales, but we've lost it across the West. And uh, I think you're right. You know, you've certainly got to win a Westminster election. I think there are things we can do here, quite bluntly. I think we can, we've got powers over taxation here we can use, which will certainly have an impact from my son's education, for example. And I think there are things that we can do uh, in Wales, I don't think. I think sometimes when I hear ministers, and you might have heard me say this, um, constantly saying there's nothing we can do, then you're reminded of John Major, aren't you? You're in office but not in power, and people want ministers to be in power as well as in office. It's not enough to sit in the back of a ministerial car. You have to be able to do things, and so um, I think Welsh Labour does have a responsibility as well. Jeremy Corbyn is the leader of the Labour Party, and he would see himself and his immediate supporters would see him as a major opponent of austerity politics. You're not um, a great fan of his, are you? No, I, 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 don't, um, I don't see him as a future Prime Minister. It's as simple as that, really. I don't see him as somebody who, can, who, who has the ability to do what I've um, suggested needs doing, you know, to be able to articulate an alternative to austerity. And I was very impressed with Tony Blair. You know, I'm one of these people who still think that Tony Blair did a fantastic job in government. You know, people will point out errors and mistakes. Well, you know, when, when the Day of Judgment arrives, let the innocent go first, you know. Uh, I won't be at the first of that here. But he did address child poverty in Blind Gwent. Child poverty fell in Blind Gwent. 
Deirdre Blair's dying in office. And uh, I can take you to a thousand people who said that you know things like tax credits made a huge difference to them and their families, and the way in which we invested in the National Health Service. Budget of Welsh Government doubled over our time in office, and anybody who seeks to decry um, Labour's time in office from 97 uh, to 2010 are people who I think are making fundamental errors of judgment in terms of their politics. I felt that Gordon, for all his different attributes of uh, great respect, was, was not able to win a mandate. Um, I supported David Miliband in subsequent elections and I supported um, uh, other candidates since then but I felt that we needed a candidate who could both have, have the intellectual grasp of the issues facing us, who understood the future of the United Kingdom as an evolving multinational state and somebody who could have that international reach as well. And for the best will in the world, you know, it's no secret. Uh, I don't think that um, Jeremy Corbyn has those things. And, you know, I, I think in, in that sense, I, I see it in Blind Eye Gwent, people. I don't see him as an alternative, and that's a real problem for us. Who do you see as a potential leader who would oh, have those merits? Today, I would vote for Yvette Cooper. Tomorrow, I'd vote for her this afternoon, you know. I, you know, I watched Yvette as chair of a Home Affairs Committee, isn't she? And, and she's done a super job um, in that and holding the UK government to account. I think people like Hilary Benn as well are, you know, beyond comparison. So, you know, I, I don't think there's any lack of depth of talent available to the UK Labour Party. They're not on the front bench, <laughs> unfortunately. I think the front bench is profoundly weak in London. But we need to understand where the people of Britain are. And the people of Britain want a Prime Minister with whom they can feel comfortable and has the values. How do you think the Brexit saga is going to be resolved? Look, I don't know. Uh, I think uh, only a fool would uh, suggest that they know the answers. I'll tell you what I think. I think that Brexit has, has its roots in austerity. It has its roots in a lack of confidence in politics. I think all of those issues were whipped up by a an organisation like UKIP. I think the poster, which we're all familiar with, with Nigel Farage standing in front of the line of people, was nakedly racist. I think they have whipped up, um, if not racism, but chauvinism and discrimination. Uh, I think they've broken our politics. I think they've created a culture in this country which is deeply ugly. And uh, I think we need to. I think we need to do two things. Therefore, uh, three things, if you like. First of all, the technical process of winning an argument on Brexit. You know, I was contacted yesterday by somebody who said, I've, I've read all these things about the Lisbon Treaty. You must have seen it on social media. And there's a fact checks website which says none of this is true. You know. You send that to people, and these are good people. They they don't know, you know. They 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 don't pretend to to feel that they they want a reassurance sometimes about different things. And I think we've got to win that argument on Brexit. But being a part of the European Union is good for our economy, but it's good for us as a country, as a people, to share sovereignty, to believe that you know not every day is the last night of the proms. Although I did enjoy the, the all the European flags being waved on Saturday night. 
So we need to win that argument on uh, economic and on social and cultural grounds to remain a part of a European Union. And I think we do that through a referendum. We can't do it the way the Liberals are suggesting, simply through a vote. Um, I don't think undoing referenda by votes in Parliament, whether this Parliament or that Parliament, is a good thing at all. So I don't think we can do that. But we need to do it through a referendum. But then we need to do two things which are more important. We need the economics which move away from austerity which is about investing in people and investing in places and investing in people who who need the opportunity to take them forward and places that are fragile um, the economy of Blind Gwent is a fragile economy and we need investment in our in our towns our town centers but in our people as well so we need to reverse that and then we need to do one other thing and in some ways for our futures and for your daughter's future my children's future this is potentially the most important thing. We need to win almost a culture war with these people. We need to win an argument that people are not bad because they speak a different language, because they worship in a different place, because they come from a different town, because we don't understand the language they speak. They have a name we're not familiar with. We have to win an argument which is against chauvinism, against racism, against discrimination, and build the sort of country we started building back, you know, you remember Cool Cymru in 97 and all these different things going on in, at the end of the 90s, and build a society that is at peace with itself. At the moment, society is not at peace with itself. We have institutions which are under attack. You know, I have a panic button next to my bed. I, don't want, I didn't go into politics for that. I didn't go into politics to have people talking to my children about decisions I take and interviews I give. And we have to remake our politics. We also have technological changes. You know, the way we interact with the state is going to change. Now, how does a socialist and how does somebody like me who wants to see greater democracy respond to that? You know, I listen to people telling me they want broadcasting devolved to Cardiff, and I'm content of it, really. I, I, I don't think it will work, essentially. But, you know, it's not, I, I'm not a dying mistake on it. But how do you regulate Google? How do you regulate Amazon? We're not going to do it here in Cardiff Bay. We can do it at a European level. We can't do it in Westminster either, really, what they think they can. But we can do it at a European level. So how do we regulate these multinational mega-corporations? You know, these are the questions for the future. You work for the Western Mail, which is a paper I read all of my life, and I enjoy reading, and I think it's actually a far better paper today than it has been for many years, if I'm blunt with you. But decisions are taken by Trinity Mirror. Are those decisions taken in for benefit of Western Mail for its readers or for Wales? You know, I would ask you your view, but it's probably not is the case. So how do we have regulation over some of these monopolies? How do we access news? How do we access news that we can rely on, news that we know is accurate? If not, you know, there will be different views on it. How do we provide people with information? How do we provide people with opportunities, you know, when you have, um, say, 20 or 30% of people who are digitally excluded? You know, these big, big challenges for the future. And I hope that this place in Cardiff Bay can be a part of meeting those challenges. But we've got to be more radical, far more radical than we have been in, um, in the past, and more radical than perhaps we understand. You've demonstrated just now that you're a plain-talking politician, which um, has sometimes got you into trouble in the past, has it? I mean, you've, you've been sacked on a couple of occasions. Uh, twice. Yeah, literally twice, a couple of occasions, yeah. yeah. And, uh, I mean, you know, there are those who would say, yes, he's, he's, he's very uh, capable, but he's got something that is a bit maverick about him, you can't wholly be confident that he's not going to go off-piste, as it were, 
Um, what would you say to that? And do you think that you will come back? Do you see yourself being a minister again? A lot of people ask me this question. Any time I think about it is when I'm asked a question, I never know quite how to answer it. Look, um, I've never challenged any First Minister or anybody else on the co composition of government. It doesn't matter for them. It's not a matter for me. I didn't come into politics to be a minister. I came into politics to deliver for people I represent. So it's not, you know, the greasy pole has never been something which is, I found, particularly attractive way to spend one's life. And as you've suggested, I've never... Um, put myself forward as uh, uh, an easy minister, you know. But what I've tried to do is tell the truth. And uh, I gave a lecture last year um, on active citizenship, which I think is one of the key challenges facing Wales. Um, going back to, you know, would we establish a medical aid society today? Of course we wouldn't. We'd ask, we'd expect the Welsh Government to do it. But why? We can do it as citizens, you know. Surely we can do things for ourselves. For me... Telling the truth as one sees it is the important responsibility I have as a politician. I have a very privileged position, a very privileged position. I, I know that every time I walk into the chamber and speak on behalf of the people I represent, it's a privilege to do it. Now, how do you use and exercise that privilege? Uh, I think we have a number of responsibilities, one of which is to tell the truth as we see it, and I've tried to do that over our conversation. And that is not always comfortable. I do not believe that it is right and proper that a country of 3 million people has 22 local authorities, period. I don't believe that many people believe it either. But politicians do, of course. And it's uncomfortable for politicians to be told by another politician, frankly, if the emperor has no clothes. You know, that this is not working. We have not reformed devolved Wales enough. We have not reformed the governance of devolved Wales enough. We still have largely the structures which existed prior to devolution. That means we need more reform. That's not popular in the chamber. It's not popular in my own party. It's not popular in any party. Although privately, if you're in the Eli Jenkins or the Tea Room, everybody will agree with you. You know, I've lost count of a number of politicians I've heard stand up and say something where they've said something completely different to me in private. And that's a matter for them. But we do need, in facing these enormous challenges of our time, I think politicians who are prepared to say, do you know what? I don't think that's, that's right. And politicians who do, and I'm comfortable in in that role. I'm comfortable campaigning for the people I represent. I'm comfortable saying things which I know are sometimes unpopular, you know. And I think we do need to do that because otherwise, if you create this consensus in the middle, then nothing ever changes, does it? Nothing ever changes because you're afraid to offend people. And I, I, I recoil sometimes. I mean, you've described it as controversial. Uh, I know Wikipedia has. And I recoil from that because that implies a superficiality and, I, and, and that to be controversial is, is the purpose. And it isn't, of course. To be right is the purpose. To contribute is the purpose. To say what you think matters is the purpose. To change the terms of a debate is the purpose. You know, I've enjoyed being in government. Don't get me wrong. You know, uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time in government. I enjoyed reforming the common agricultural policy. I enjoyed the reforms I pushed through on um, some of the way we did our environment policy. I still don't think we do enough on renewables. I think we've got a huge agenda on climate change, which we're not addressing with sufficient vigour. And I, I, I'd like to contribute more to, towards that as well. And, you know, I see myself as very much a policy-driven 
politician, objectives-driven politician. I'm not one who simply corrects a grammar ministerial letters. You know, I really don't give a damn about that sometimes. But I do engage in political debate. And, you know, one thing, I was chatting to a farmer um, over the summer, and he said, you know, you came to every meeting we wanted, you stood up without notes, you spoke for half an hour, and you answered questions for two hours afterwards. That's what we want from a minister. Somebody who knows their brief, knows and understands their subject, and somebody who can argue their cause. And nowadays, of course, quite a lot of those people who opposed me in those days tell me that I was right, but I didn't know about Brexit, of course. Yeah, I didn't know about that. And so I'm reasonably satisfied with my track record. I'm reasonably happy with a lot of what we were able to do. There's far more to do, far more to do. I'm bitterly disappointed we're not moving ahead with greater reform of, of public services in Wales. I think that's an absolutely critical issue facing us and will be more critical in the future than it is today. Whatever money is sent down the M4, you know, it isn't about money. It's about how we deliver absolutely core services. So um, it isn't just about money, I should say. So there's an enormous agenda ahead of us, and I'm hopefully going to contribute towards it. Anna Davis, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.